0: Ecclesiastes 9. If you have your Bible, if you have your Bible on your smartphone or whatever, get there. And version is available as well. Check that out uh, to kind of follow along with the version I'll be using. Ecclesiastes 9. I feel like I'm repeating the same introduction week after week. So why don't we just kind of skip that introduction, um, just give you the Cliff Notes version. But this is the book, and it is a book that just repeats the same theme over and over again, which is Pursuit's that uh, people take on under the sun, right? Places where people kind of plant their feet and say, this is the place I'm going to find meaning. This is the place I'm going to find joy. Um, This is where my future rests. Any of those under the sun, which is a phrase he's going to repeat over and over and over again in the book, any of those is doomed to fail, right? What I want you to do this morning is This shouldn't be hard for most of us to do. Uh, You get to daydream a little bit with me this morning. Imagine, Imagine that you are on a cruise ship this morning. It is the latest and greatest. It's got the pools. It's got the restaurants. It's got the fitness center. It's got all the bells and whistles. It has plenty of lounge chairs around the pools. You don't have to fight for one. And there you are... Catching some sun, you've got your book that you're reading, you've got a beverage that has a nice little umbrella sticking out of it, you are relaxing. This is your vacation, and you are completely unplugged from all of the stuff you worry about. Now, if you're on a cruise ship and this is your vacation, then What you're supposed to be doing is enjoying yourself, is to be relaxing, unless unless the boat is sinking. If the boat is sinking, then you're an idiot if you're laying out there catching some rays. All of a sudden, if the boat is sinking, all of a sudden, all of that stuff that you ignore on a cruise, the lifeboats the life jackets, um, the plaques on the wall telling you emergency procedure, all the stuff you ignore on a cruise all of a sudden becomes incredibly relevant and incredibly important. And all of a sudden, you want to be crammed on a little lifeboat with 75 other people because that is your chance to survive, to not drown on this ship. Now, what, what Solomon is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he does again in chapter 9, Solomon it, it, it sees a world of people who are at rest, okay? Some of them are at rest in the pursuit of money. Some of them are involved in, okay, we, everything, everything you can imagine, trying to find respect and, and success and climb the ladder and, and, or they're, they're totally committed to a relationship with another person, whatever it is. But they are involved in all of these things. And Solomon is saying, look, all of those things under the sun are sinking ships. All of them are sinking ships. Wake up, he says. Now, I'll be honest with you. Solomon, some of you probably really appreciate... Let me, let me say two things here, two little footnotes. First of all, um, so, no one's actually mentioned this to me yet, but I'll just throw this out there. There is some debate about who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, traditional view is Solomon. Look, my point of view is it is either Solomon that's writing it or it is, a, it is inspired by Solomon or it is ghost-written for Solomon. Right, But it is from the point of view of Solomon, whether he had the quill in his hand or not. The second thing is, some of you can really track with the teacher here. Some of you can really track with this philosopher, because you guys are provocateurs. You are devil's advocates. You are the ones who go off to your Bible class, and you like to say the thing that gets under everybody's skin, right? You like to, you like to tweet something, or you like to put something on Facebook that you know is going to stir the pot. Well, you you are soulmates with Solomon because Solomon is here to stir the pot. I mean, he is. And if this series, Fuel, from the book of Ecclesiastes, if it has made you um, uncomfortable, if this series has unnerved you a little bit, if it has irritated you, congratulations, you are paying attention. It should do all of that. Because the last thing you want if you're on a sinking ship is to feel relaxed and comfortable and everything's good. Solomon's doing his job if he's got you a little bit unnerved and a little uncomfortable. Chapter 9. If you've been with us the last 11 weeks, we could have just called today's sermon more of the same because that's really what it is in chapter 9. Chapter 9, he says, um, some folks don't notice that their ship is sinking. Um, uh, they're in this kind of complacent state of mind, and there are several different things that can cause that, and he is going to kind of talk through those briefly this morning. He's going to talk about creeds, right? about, about religious conviction. He's going to talk about comfort and, and, and convenience and, and, and contentment, he's going to, and then he's going to end up kind of talking about companionship. So let's start out in chapter 9, here, verse 1. This too I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious, good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. Verse 3. It seems so tragic. It seems so tragic that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate that's why people are not more careful to be good instead they choose their own mad course for they have no hope there is nothing ahead but death anyway there is hope only for the living as they say it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion creeds contentment um, comfort companionship so the first of these is Um, Given this list, some people say, I choose option A. I choose religious conviction. That is the foundation that I can trust with my life. And since we're reading from the Bible, you would think Solomon's going to say, you betcha. That's not what he says. It's not what he says. There's a big difference, of course, between authentic, deep faith faith Relationship with God, humility before God, gratitude in God's presence. There's a big difference between that kind of faith and and a sort of of faithiness, um, a sort of a sort of faithish religion that says goddish things and biblically things, but doesn't really have that relationship with God. Um, the shallow version you might think of nowadays is kind of like a collection of of Christian tips and techniques, you know, five ways to have a happy marriage, um, ten ways to raise perfect children, um, the perfect spiritual recipe for a stress-free life, all of this sort of stuff that's very popular nowadays. Um, And and these kinds of people that have this version of, of faithiness This version, this sort of credo that they have that they follow, um, they believe that good things happen to good people. Better yet, good things happen to godly people. And bad things don't tend to happen to those people. Uh, They believe that if you practice these techniques, um, if you go to church every Sunday, whatever that their list is, that you will live longer. That you will make more money, that you will get that promotion ahead of somebody else at work, and that really, in the end, God just wants you to be happy, right? But do rid? But this is the question Solomon asks and answers. Um, do religious people really get to hang out in God's VIP lounge? Do religious people really get? easy street and he says, we all know the answer. We know the answer. Verses 1-4 to basically say, seriously? You think that's the way it works? The same tragic stuff happens to the churchgoer, happens to the atheist, happens to the hedonist, the same stuff. The same car crash, the same cancer, the same canker sore, you name it. It happens to the godly people and it happens to the pagan people. Solomon says, You know this. You can't argue with me. You've seen it happen. And so, to those kicked back, sipping a cocktail of cozy Christianity, Solomon gets his bullhorn, walks up to their lounge chair on deck, and says, You're sinking. Get to the lifeboat. And the Bible couldn't be any more clear about this from beginning to end. I mean, it is super clear that the lifestyle of a believer, the lifestyle of a God follower, is a dangerous adventure. There are no guarantees of safety. In fact, I think you can make a good case that God over and over again puts a warning sign on the life of following him. Pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulations. He's pretty clear. In the Old Testament, you've got all these prophets that either end up arrested or stoned. Choice A or choice B. Usually a combination of both, right? You go to the New Testament, and in this chapter... Hebrews chapter 11, which is is just looking at at these wonderful examples of faithfulness throughout all time. I mean, it kind of wraps up. We don't usually read these in church. We usually like to talk about the the Abraham and Moses stuff. But but you get to this stuff in, in Hebrews 11 at the end, this kind of summary. And in verse 36, starting there, it says, Look, of these faithful people, verse 36, Some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. Sounds pretty bad, but I take that stuff over what's coming up. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, and in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. These are the VIPs. And that's what happened to them. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. Now, there is perhaps a way that someone maybe named Olstein, right, or, or something else would read this and say, but see, God had something better planned for us. In the New Testament, everything works out great for the believers. You know, tell that to Jesus hanging on the cross. Tell that to Peter and the rest of the disciples who were crucified or stoned or fed to the lions. It didn't work out so great. Okay, I don't need to, I don't need to belabor this anymore. I mean, it's just it's obvious truth. God, God does reward the faithful, yes. God does bless the faithful, right. He does not, however, promise them that their life ...here under the sun will be easy... ...and that they will find success in worldly terms... ...easier than everybody else will find it. The good and the joyful or the difficult and the sorrowful... ...they can in the life of the faithful person bring glory to God. And that's what life is about. Whatever I'm going through, am I bringing glory to God or not? That's the question that matters, right? Tim Keller kind of challenging this view because this is the view that says, God is enough. I don't need all of the other stuff. When you get down to it, all I need is God. He is the center. His glory is what matters to me. Tim Keller writes these words. He says, sin is not just the doing of bad things, but it is the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship with God. So good things, when they become God things, are sinful and idolatrous. Trying to find meaning in this life Under the sun, whether it's in the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of power or the comfort of a religious credo, those ships are sinking. And just working harder at that, throwing yourself more deeply into those pursuits is like bailing water with a thimble. You can't keep up with the meaninglessness, with the futility. And the ultimate answer Solomon always uses is death. They will not help you escape death. That's the bullhorn that cuts, cuts through all of the empty promises of this world. No matter how good you are, no matter how religious you are, there is a certainty that you will perish, good and evil will perish. A certainty that this morning you are nearer to death than when you, when you woke up this morning. You're several steps closer. Now, you can try hard to avoid thinking about death. I mean, you can, you, can, you can insulate yourself from death to some extent. Don't watch the nightly news. Don't read the obituary in the newspaper or on the Internet. I mean, don't, don't attend funerals. I mean, you can do that. And sometimes you even wonder... You know how our culture really tries to do that nowadays, even when it comes to, to funerals themselves. You know, we don't call them funerals anymore. We changed that years ago to a memorial service. Um, now a lot of times we call it Celebration of Life, which, by the way, I love those titles, but it's just interesting how we try not to think about death. You don't see as many bodies anymore at funerals. You with me? You know this is true. I mean, now it's just a big picture of, hey, you know. I mean, we don't want to think about Death. And Solomon says, it do you some good to think about death. To remind yourself that if your faith is not in God, your boat is going under. So, the God follower has this confidence that everything that happens must pass through the hands of our Father first. And so Solomon's alerted us that creeds will not stop death from happening, will not stop death. Ship from sinking, he turns his attention now to comfort and and to contentment. And this makes sense, really, because think about this. I mean, not everyone does this, but a lot of people, if you give up on religion, if you give up on God, um, then it's it's pretty natural to think, well, if there is no God, if I'm giving up on religion, then the purpose of my life must be to have a really good time. I mean, I am going to throw myself 100% into giving myself a good time now. Verse 5, the living at least know that they will die, but the dead, they don't know anything. They've no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, it's all gone, long gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. So go ahead, eat your food with joy, drink your wine, have a happy heart. God approves all of this. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. There's a sense here that the simple joys, the pleasures of this life can be a good thing as long as they are not a God thing. As long as you keep them in perspective, Solomon says it's okay to enjoy yourself. It's a good thing to enjoy yourself. God approves this, he says. And he takes on, you know, I don't know if you see this, he takes on a certain religious orientation here. Like I said, we're not going to be comfortable with everything he says. He takes on a certain religious orientation that says, and it feels spiritual, it says that living an ascetic lifestyle, a pleasure-free lifestyle, a lifestyle of self-denial, punishing yourself for God, that that is where it's at. That is the key to holiness. That's been going on for thousands of years, that way of thinking about the spiritual lifestyle, you know. First century, there were some people, um, the Colossians, that kind of struggled with this. Um, they, they experienced grace and salvation in Jesus Christ, and they figured, well, real holiness though, we've got to add in a little bit of a little bit of self denial and self punishment, right? And then Saul, I mean Saul, Paul rebukes them. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, this is from the message, he says, um, and he's quoting them, okay? He's quoting them, Don't touch this. Don't taste that. Don't go near this. Do you think that things that are here today and gone tomorrow are worth that kind of attention? Such things sound impressive if said in a deep enough voice. They even give the illusion of being pious, humble, and ascetic. <laughs> but they're just another way of showing off, making yourselves look important. Paul says look, there is a fake spirituality that sounds and feels really holy Um, this is version of godliness it looks impressive um, but it's only an illusion it's only a copy of the real thing real holiness isn't found in denying yourself all pleasure it's not making up all sorts of rules to make sure you never smile you never laugh you never enjoy yourself real holiness and this is from the rest of paul's writings real holiness comes from connecting to jesus from connecting to Christ. It's going deeper and deeper into this love relationship with God through Christ and ministry to people who are the image of the God that you love. That's what holiness is, Paul says. So it's, it's pretty, pretty simple, pretty easy just to say, hey, you know, material stuff is, is a sinking ship You should avoid it at all costs, avoid pleasure, avoid avoid the fun things of this life because it's all sinking. But Solomon says not so fast. He says since we're all sinking anyway, why not enjoy some of that? Why not enjoy some of the temporary but pleasurable things God has put in the world? And while you're at it, why not share some of that with those who don't have those things? throwing in a little New Testament there with him there. He doesn't talk much about sharing, but you get the point. It's okay. As long as you're free from those things, right? As long as you're not married to those things, as long as you're not obsessed with those things, as long as you're free, you can share them and you can enjoy them and you can bring glory to God, the giver of those good things. Now, this is what I'm thinking about as I'm looking at this balance between these two kind of extreme lifestyles. The hedonist over here who doesn't care about God, who doesn't care about the things of God and has just thrown themselves into pleasure. There's the hedonist over here and then there's this pious religious person over here who believes they're super spiritual because they don't touch any of that stuff. Well, I've got an answer to this dilemma. Well, who's right? Okay, the answer is Jesus, Okay. He's always the right answer in Bible class. I learned that when I was three years old. Jesus, Jesus, can I have a gold star? Well, he's the answer here because if there ever was a holy person, a human being who embodied holiness, I think we can agree this is his church. This is the church of Christ here. We can agree it was Jesus, right? I don't know if Jesus found it amusing, but he at least noticed how when he was around there were these two extreme views. And he uses himself and John the Baptist as kind of examples. He says, look, John the Baptist comes around. The guy's not not checked in at the Hilton Hotel and delivering his sermons in a conference room. I mean, he he is dressed like a homeless person he has taken a Nazarite vow. He, his lips have never touched wine. He, he has this complete lifestyle of absolute devotion only to the things of God, not to anything that might bring himself pleasure. That's John the Baptist. And Jesus says, you guys think he's a nutcase, All right? Then I come along, and I don't know if you've checked out the, the Gospels recently, but You look at Jesus. I mean, he's had a lot of dinner parties. I mean, he's telling these stories. People are yucking it up with Jesus. He's talking about heaven like it's this big banquet and God is going to kill the fatted calf and there's going to be this party and music and dancing. and and So so Jesus comes along with that kind of thing going on. He's having dinner at at sinners' houses like, like Matthew, right? And he says, you guys think I'm a complete pagan. Which is it? Listen to what he says. Jesus and Luke kind of calls them on this. Luke chapter 7, verse 33, John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking uh, bread nor drinking wine. You say, he's got a demon. Guy's a religious nutcase, right? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. You say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. So what Solomon isn't saying here is, is that ever, the everlasting purpose of human existence is to eat, drink, and have a good time. He's absolutely not saying that, but he is saying you don't have to go to the other, the other extreme of self-deprivation and label that spiritual. Jesus lived this balanced life. The guy loved God. The guy loved other people. And he enjoyed himself occasionally. If you love God with all your heart and you love others, you are a free woman or a free man. Relish what God gives you to enjoy. Be open-handed with, God, with what God gives you to enjoy. Freedom. Two kinds of people are not free. The hyper-religious person that believes having any fun is wrong, that person is not free. They're a slave to all their traditions, to all their credo. The other person that's not free is the person that's just given themselves over to doing whatever they want to do. They are a slave of want. Neither one of these people is free. They are both on sinking ships. That's Solomon's point in chapter 9. So he's hit creeds. He's hit contentment and comforts. Now he's going to hit companionship. Verse 9. Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is your reward for all your earthly toil. Whatever you do, do well. For when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. Basically saying it's the same theme. He's been talking about before. Um, if you're blessed to have a husband and wife, if that's, if that's what God has given you and that's, that's kind of your station in life, he says enjoy that. Enjoy the fact. He says more than just enjoying that, do it with all of your might. Be a great husband. Devote yourself to honoring God in that relationship, to going all in with your wife. If that's what God has allowed you to have, but he's saying also recognize even a human relationship as important in marriage is a sinking ship. I mean, it's not going to save you in the end. It's not going to prevent death from happening. Um, the grave, he says in those final verses I just read, he says the grave is still a certainty. Not even a strong relationship is the ultimate answer to that. Is it important? Yes. But is not the answer to the ship you're sinking on. And so now that we've gotten into the text... We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. He's mentioning all of this stuff. He's discounting this stuff. He's talking about using moderation and wisdom with these things. But in chapter 9, there are two themes, I think, that you see popping up. If you kind of take a step back, you see two themes, death and God. All right? We've talked about death plenty Let's talk a little bit about God, because this theme of God keeps popping up in chapter 9, which is a pretty amazing thing in the book of Ecclesiastes. He really doesn't pop up all that much until the end, but in chapter 9, God shows up. And here's what I notice as I'm I'm working through this this week. In verse 1, God allows, right? In verse 1, God allows. In my life, when tragedy hits... When somebody I care about passes away, I can find peace in knowing those things have passed through my God's hands. God has allowed those things to happen to me for his glory. Verse one, God allows. In verse seven, Solomon says, God approves. God approves. Approves what? Food, drink, cologne, a nice shirt, a nice dress, the simple pleasures of life. Solomon says, those things are from God. Enjoy them. Give thanks for them. Is there freedom in those things? No. But there is some enjoyment. There's some seasoning to life there. So God allows. God approves. And in verse 9, God gives. God gives. God gives this deep relationship, and and he talks about marriage, but I think it could be any kind of deep friendship, you know, one-of-a-kind friendship that you have with another person. He said God gives those things. They aren't just something that we get lucky enough to have or that we kind of manufacture on our own, although he says we do have responsibility to work on those relationships. But he says God gives us those wonderful relationships. So chapter 9, book of Ecclesiastes, has this simple message. Find joy in your relationships. Laugh together. Watch a movie together. Enjoy each other's company. Find joy in the simple pleasures of life. Splash on the cologne, you know, the red door. Have some barbecue. Watch your favorite baseball team. Um, Find joy in your convictions Find joy in your convictions. May they give some order and some stability to the way you do life, the way you make decisions, the way you think about the future. But he says in chapter 9, remember this. While you're enjoying those things, remember this. Every ship is sinking unless it is God. Like I said, Ecclesiastes tends to answer or tends to ask questions that the New Testament answers. And while in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, death seems to be the unescapable problem. In the New Testament, death becomes the ultimate answer. The death of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of our faith. It is the centerpiece. Of the New Testament. It's so important to us that that a cross has become the universal symbol of Christianity. So important that every week we take the Lord's Supper, we remember his death, and we we don't cry, we don't mourn it. I mean, maybe some days you do, but really, it's a rejoicing, it's a celebration. It is death is the answer. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, for setting me free from my slavery to sin setting me free from fear of physical death, His death becomes the lifeline that is thrown to anyone who will grab onto it on whatever sinking ship they may find themselves. Jesus' death is the answer. So Jesus died so that you could have freedom from empty ways of thinking about life, whether they are religious ways, whether they are hedonistic ways. He died so that you could be free from those things. He rose from death and He ascended to heaven so that you could know that the world here under the sun is not the only game in town. In fact, there is a far more real world it is eternal, it's permanent, it's lasting. And that is the world that's not under the sun. There's this powerful Christian symbol, the symbol of baptism. Um, I don't know if you've thought much about what the symbol means. I mean, most people choose to be baptized just because the New Testament says I need to be baptized or they read in like Mark chapter 16, Jesus says I need to be baptized. So, and that's, that's a pretty good reason to be baptized, okay? But the symbol of baptism is incredibly meaningful. It is a representation of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. When a person is immersed in water, they reenact, they participate in the death of Jesus. And just as the grave could not hold Jesus down, in baptism, when a person comes up out of the water, it symbolizes no longer are they subject to, to the futility and the meaninglessness of the sinking ship of this world under the sun. They are free to live a new sort of life. And even though they fully expect to die a physical death at some point, they realize this life here, although it's meaningful, although it's important, although important decisions are made here, it's not even getting out of the starting blocks in the whole scheme of things.